We are, we had so much fun up front there. We're running a little behind. Me skipping, no, no, really, we're running behind like we're skipping this late transition. I'm, I'm really, I'm still standing right here. Yes. So, two weeks ago, we turned the page in our series on the life of David, which we've been exploring since the start of last, uh, this past summer here. I, I thought we'd maybe be done by... Um, end of August, and, and here we go. Uh, we're we're kind of aiming for Thanksgiving so that we can actually, you know, move into Advent. Um, but, but there's just more and more stuff that just kind of unfolds for us. And a couple weeks ago, we delved into a very kind of painful story in the life of David. It's a season where things get pretty hard again. And, and many of you know that, that the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart which it can be really interesting to look at that distinction that David has, even though we get this close-up picture all through these stories of, yes, wonderful successes and amazing things, but also, like, miserable failures. And we see his faults and his shortcomings and his flaws, but yet he's still called a man after God's own heart. And for me, that's really encouraging because it tells me that, that, that Scripture gives us the honest truth about the imperfect lives of people in the Bible. Like, it gives us this, this picture of the flaws and failures of these people that we see as heroes of the faith, and they're still heroes of the faith, but we get to see who they really, really are. I mean, if somebody was trying to sell you a line of phony religion, they would never include this really messy, painful, honest stuff, Right? If, if you were trying to sell somebody religion, then the heroes would be perfect and, and flawless and pristine, right? But, but apparently the Bible doesn't think much about marketing some sort of fake image, does it? I mean, seriously, if you were trying to create a religion where you wanted people to read a book and decide, yes, this holds the great truths of life and faith, wouldn't you just include a bunch of perfect people who you'd go, oh, look, it worked for them, right? They followed the formula, and here's their happy, picture-perfect life, um, but the good news is the Bible is truthful and it is real, and the truth is there are no perfect people. And so if we're dealing like with, with real lives, like Scripture deals with real life, it's good news to know that we can be honest enough to know that God loves and works through the messiest of people and circumstances, and apparently it delights him to work through imperfect people. I just look through Scripture, right? People like, like um, Abraham and Moses, and, and Joshua, and Samson, and Samuel, and people like David, uh, people like the disciples and the apostles, knuckleheads like the apostle um, Peter and Paul, and then he works through people like you and me, doesn't he? So the fact that the lives in Scripture are shown with this unvarnished honesty gives me great hope, and for me it makes Scripture even more trustworthy because I believe it's real. Now, this past couple Sundays, Yvonne spoke uh, last week, and didn't Yvonne do an amazing job last week? Yes, very courageous. Amazing, amazing. She is such a great preacher, and, and, and we told the story her week and the week before about three of David's children, um, his son Amnon and Tamar, daughter, and another son, Absalom. It's a heartbreaking story, and the first part of the story we saw that even though, again, David was a man after God's own heart, we see this pattern of passivity when it comes to his family. And to recap that story, Amnon was David's firstborn son, so he was the heir, and we're told in that story, and we're, just gonna, we're not going to camp out on that, we're going to move on, but just so you have context if you weren't here, um, Amnon developed a sexual obsession with his sister Tamar and comes up with a plot to lure her 
um, to his room while he pretends to be sick. And so she goes in. She thinks she's just going to serve her sick brother some food. And then he tries to, um, well, he violates her. He violates her because he's stronger. Um, And then after that, his obsession turns to hatred, and he kicks her out. And he was counting on her to keep silent, (laughs) to play along with his plans for the cover-up. But she heroically took a stand by rending her garments, um, showing that, that something terrible had happened to her. She did that in a way that people would notice and then waited. She waited for justice to prevail. She was betting her life on the fact that her father, the king, her father, David, would do the right thing. She was betting her life on his character. This this man that was said to be a man after God's own heart, and and he had all the power of the throne behind him, she was betting he would set things right, that he would say something, do something, stand up for her, maybe show some of the courage that, that she had shown. But he did nothing. Uh, her, her brother, Absalom, found out what happened. He takes her to go live in his home, and he doesn't really know how to help. He gives her terrible advice. He basically says, Shh, don't take this to heart, sister, which is not helpful to say to any victim. But he doesn't know what to do. He hasn't been fathered well either. So brother Absalom takes Tamar in, and they wait for David to do something. And here's what the text says, Second Samuel 13 Verse 21, when King David heard about all of this, he was furious. Period. That was it. He did nothing. He didn't lift a finger, and that's where we left off two weeks ago. And at that point, two years had passed where they had waited for him to do something. Two years. Imagine that. Two years of humiliation for Tamar. Two years of passivity for David. But two years of brooding vengeance for Absalom. And in that two years is when Absalom started to become a very dangerous man. And then he decides after two years, he's going to take matters into his own hands. And so he does. Now he's a loose cannon. So what happens is Absalom comes up with a plot. And he invites all the other, his brothers, the princes, and his father David to go out of town for a big feast away from the capital city. And so all the princes, all of David's sons, they go. But David says, no, no, I don't want to be a burden to you. But he allows, David allows all his sons to go, even Amnon. He allows Amnon to go as well. So the guests arrive, the feast begins, and Absalom says to his servants, guys, first get, get him drunk, get Amnon drunk, then we'll take action. And he pulls this off. It works. He avenges his sister by killing his half-brother, Amnon. Verse 29 says, So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. So first what happens is the news comes to David. Uh, He hears that all his sons are dead. But verse 30 says, While they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. And the king got up, tore his clothes, lay down on the ground. All his attendants stood by with their clothes torn. This is how they grieved. Verse 32, but Jonadab, David's brother, uh, son of Simea, David's brother said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord, the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Interesting, this Jonadab guy, he's the same one that helped Amnon plot to get Tamar in the mix. And now he's showing up as this, you know, guy that has all the insider info. Interesting character. 
Uh, verse 34, meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Like he knows, right? I can't stick around. So he runs away. He goes into exile and he's banished and he's gone for three years. So add this up, right? There's the violation of Tamar and then there's two years that pass where all this builds up and he kills his brother after two years and now he goes to exile for three years and now altogether it's been five years. Some amazing math. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right? Um, but again, the sad thing is during that three-year period, just like the two-year period, David does nothing. He's passive. Passive. Three years of no contact with his son Absalom, which if David had acted and engaged in the first place, Absalom might have done something different. Oh, that's, the whole story could have gone on a different path. But passive David did nothing back then, and he does nothing in this part now as well. So finally, after... Um, Oh, I'm sorry, here's the next verse here, verse 37. King David mourned for his son every day. The spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom, right? It says here, so we can see that David was sad, his heart ached, but he did not go. He stayed home. He did not act. He did not engage. He still does nothing. And so after five years now of passivity, um, Joab, who was kind of like the, the chief of staff for David, Joab intervenes in chapter 14 of 2 Samuel. Joab has this woman show up to speak to the king and tell him a story. And her story is, uh, I'm a widow, and one of my sons killed my other son, so now people want to kill my living son to punish him for killing the other son, but then both of my sons will be dead, and I can't live with that. Um, which sounds a little familiar, right? It doesn't sound like it's all that disguised here in the story, does it? Um, it's a little sad, actually, I think, that in order to get David's attention at this point in his life, in order to get him to move away from his passivity, it looks like the people around him are resorting to telling thinly veiled stories to just try to get him to, to wake up, right? And I'm guessing that Joab had noticed that this tactic worked when the prophet Nathan came in after the Bathsheba incident and confronted him about murder and adultery and that cover-up, and, and it works. So Joab tries his version of this and has a lady come in, and she's the actor in the scene. And, and it's fascinating that, like, no one can speak to him directly. Like, he's leading in isolation. And we're not sure why, um, but it looks like he's built up some walls to self-protect where people just can't be direct with him. And I want to talk about that more in a few weeks. But um, in this episode here, the woman tells a story, and the king says, all right, I'll issue an edict on your behalf, and it's going to protect your living son from being put to death for his crime. And then she turns the tables, verse 12. And the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my lord, the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God when the king says this? Does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son, right? You're going to do this edict to protect some other son, her son, ostensibly here, but, but you wouldn't do that for your own son? Then she says in verse 14, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And that's an amazing truth right here, right? This unnamed woman says something so profound about the heart of God. And I don't want to skip past it because it's so profound, right? Just look at that last verse, like water spilled on the ground, um, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. 
But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And that's so beautiful right there. It's so beautiful. I mean, even thinking back in the context of where this story takes place in David's lifetime, where it is, it is pretty harsh, it is pretty barbaric, and they are under the law of Moses. And in the law of Moses, uh, if someone kills another person, then that person gets put to death as punishment. But even un, in, in that context, this wise woman knows something about the heart of God, a heart that pursues us, a, a God that devises ways so that people that are far from him don't have to stay far from him. I love that it uses the word devises, right? He devises ways. He's coming up with ways. He's thinking of things. He's working around the situation. Like, that's how strong God's love is for you. It's like the song that we sing. It says, God, there's no shadow that you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up, there's no wall you won't kick down, no lie that you won't tear down coming after me and you. That's the God that we serve, my friends. That is his love for you. That is part of the, the relentless pursuing heart of God for you and for me. And I didn't want to just read through it to the next verse without stopping here because I think that this verse is in the middle of this, this story to remind us that no matter what the outcome of the story is, and spoiler alert, this, the outcome of this story is, is pretty crappy, okay? But even so, no matter what the outcome of the story is, God is continually inviting us to turn to him. Like he's devising ways for you and I to choose to come home to his heart. And, and, and listen, there's a lot of Christians, and, and I hear this stuff all the time. People uh, that, that interpret, and in my opinion, misinterpret, um, why things happen. Like the sovereignty of God, and they think that means that, that life's already mapped out, that we're just pawns in the game, that it's inevitable. God's playing both sides of the chessboard. He's determined all these outcomes beforehand, and so whatever happens in our life, well, God did this to me. Um, but I don't buy that. And this is another story where I, it shows me, like, I don't buy it. Now, there are no endings. Like, wherever the stories go, it doesn't surprise God. Like, he wasn't surprised by the ultimate end of this Absalom story, where in a few chapters we find Absalom hanging from a tree by his hair with three spears in his heart. But the story didn't have to end up that way. See, Absalom and David, at so many junctures in their story, they could have changed course. Like, they could have given up rebellion. Uh, there's so many places in their story where they could have given up their passivity, where, where, where they could have laid down their protective walls, where they could have chosen to love, to trust, to be real with people, to be vulnerable with one another. But, but they didn't. They didn't. And even though they didn't choose to abandon this tragic path, it wasn't because God sovereignly willed it. Like, I see it, I see it like this. It's like a highway, right? We're on this highway where any point in the journey, any point, they could have taken an exit, right? They could have repented. <laughs> they could have turned around, which is what the word repent means, right? To turn, right? And they could have exited. They could have turned around. And, and they could have ended up somewhere totally different. And because God is sovereign, 
he is sovereign. He knows the infinite possibilities of any of our free will choices outcome, right? Any place that our choice takes us won't surprise him. He knows where it could go. And, and so he's never surprised. He's never surprised when we end up where we end up after our decisions that we make. And he's still... That's why he's devising, right? He's still devising ways to invite us to return. We keep going down that destructive highway, and he's like, here's another exit. You could, right here, you could get off. Right here, you could turn. No, okay. All right, next one, right? He's still at work devising ways for us to turn, for us to come home. Now back to the story. As this wise woman continues with her story in front of David, after appealing to his heart with God's heart and how God devises ways to pursue us, the king, he's, he's pretty bright, right? He finally catches wind of what's going on with her act. Um, he's probably had, you know, plenty of concussions. I mean, I'm sure battle was harder than football, right? That was the only joke you were getting the rest of this talk. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But he, he figures it out, right? He catches wind. He says, so, uh, <clears throat> by any chance, did Joab put you up to this? Right? Verse 19, the king asked, isn't the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And she fesses up, oh, well, surely as you live, my lord, the king, no one can turn to the right or left from anything my lord, the king, says. Right? She's kissing up a little bit here. She's probably a little nervous now that the ruse has come to light. Yes, yes, she says, it was your servant, Joab. He did this to change the present situation. And then she kind of goes back into flattery mode here, says, oh, king, you, you, you have wisdom like, like, like that of an angel of God. Oh, king, you know everything that happens in the land. And it works, right? At the end of the parable here, it works. Um, and, and David agrees to promise that Absalom could return from exile and he would not be harmed or punished. I should say at least he wouldn't be harmed. So this is big news, right? Absalom now in the story gets to come home. Three years of exile in another country, Absalom come home, comes home to Jerusalem. And try to picture what that was probably like for Absalom, right? Wonder maybe with me what was going on in his heart, in his mind at this point in the story. He makes this long journey back to his home. All he knows is that his father has had a very sudden change of heart and that his life is no longer in danger, but he doesn't know much else. And so he has to wonder as he approaches the city gates of the capital, he has to wonder, what's my dad going to do? Will he be harsh? Will he be tender? Will he forgive? What will he say? Like this is going to be a very defining moment in Absalom's life. I believe that it could have turned the tide and put he and his father on a very different path. But what happens is that David made one of the greatest mistakes of his life and of Absalom's life. It says in 2 Samuel 14, verse 23 says, Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem, but the king, pause here, this is David, by the way, and notice the text doesn't talk to him about the father, but the king, right? The king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. A huge mistake. And it made me think of a story that Jesus told a thousand years later, the story of the prodigal son. 
where the prodigal son, after rebellion and leaving, comes home. And what did the father do in that story? See, the father in the prodigal son story, he runs to welcome his son home. Right? That's what every human heart longs for. A father who runs to us, who allows nothing, nothing to keep us from him. But David had not been fathered well. Probably didn't have anyone to show him how to do this. I mean, King Saul was a disaster. He didn't learn much from him. And, and David's own father, Jesse, didn't seem to be much help. So David, with no good king to learn from, with no good father to learn from, and apparently no trusted friends around him anymore, his best friend Jonathan is dead, his mentor Samuel is dead, so he goes passive. He disengages. And I just wonder what went through the heart of Absalom when he returned. Like when Absalom at that moment most needed a father who would listen to him. Listen to his confusion. Listen to his, his anger. Listen to his bitterness. Listen to his hurt. Listen to his love. When, when Absalom needed all of those things, he couldn't even see the face of the king, right? Forget David, the father. The text clearly keeps calling him the king. So the story continues. Absalom tries to reach his dad again through Joab. He says, help me see my dad. I got to talk to my dad. But even Joab, the one who had lobbied David and got Absalom, you know, return. He, he won the return of Absalom. But Joab wouldn't return Absalom's calls now because he knew David's response. And so for two more years, Absalom lives in Jerusalem. Think about this. He can see the palace every day, every single day. And everyone he sees knows him and they know what's going on. Everybody knows that, his Absalom and, that, that Absalom and his father don't see each other. So finally, he's so desperate, he goes out and he sets fire to Joab's fields. And doesn't do it secretly. This isn't like just trying to cause damage. He makes sure that he gets caught. And now Joab comes over and talks to Absalom and says, why have you done this? And essentially, Absalom, you can read the whole story uh, later. I'm trying to breeze through it here um, and summarize. But, but essentially, Absalom said, I, I got to do something here to get my dad's attention. Like, I have to see my father. Let him condemn me if he wants to. And if he tells me I've done something wrong, if, if he's going to kill me, let him kill me. Or if he's going to love me, let him love me. But anything is better than this. Like, I can't do this anymore. I can't go on like this. And can you imagine the level of frustration and anger in the heart of a child when the only way they know how to get their dad's attention is to set a field on fire? And kids will do that, right? They would like to have their parents' loving attention, but if you can't get it any other way, they'll set fields on fire. Like some of us have, in this room, some of us have used drugs or, or gotten in trouble just to get our parents' attention, and some of us who are parents have had kids, right, who have done all kinds of stuff to get our attention, and Absalom here, he, he sets some fields on fire, and so Joab goes and he makes some more arrangements because passive David is still not doing anything, Joab arranges for there to be a meeting, and there is. It's kind of this public deal. Um, chapter 14, verse 33 says, So Joab went to the king and told him this. This is after the field's on fire, and Absalom wants to see him. 
Then the king summoned Absalom, get your hopes up, and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Next chapter. Notice here, and that's where we're going to leave the story. Don't worry, I'm not quite done. <laughs> Don't get your hopes up. I'm not quite done yet, right? Um, it's really sad. Like, again, notice the text here. It says, talks about the king and Absalom. Like, this is a ceremony. And it's really interesting that Absalom comes in. He bows down his face to the ground, right? I mean, imagine going to your own father and doing that. Like, that's how you're... Wouldn't that be just odd? <laughs> After that many years, like how many of us greet our dads that way? And, and if your dad was a good man and you tried greeting him that way, face to the ground, wouldn't our dad say, hey, 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 kid, listen, come on, get up. There's no need for that. Come here. I love you and embrace you, right? Embrace you. But Absalom bows the king. It says the king kissed Absalom. But it's really just for show, and, and nothing is really solved. This is still a picture of passivity. Just kind of brush it over. Pretend that things are, you know, fine. And this isn't where I was going to end this talk, but this really struck me. Um, and I started thinking about how when we get used to patterns of passivity and self-protection, when we get used to isolation, when we do that, our growth is stunted. Like we try to hide and manage and get by with as little emotional risk as possible. And maybe if things get bad enough between us and somebody else in our life, we might even, you know, okay, fine, I'll meet with that person I'm in conflict with. We'll even have a talk. We'll try to smooth things over. But friends, if we don't actually talk about the issues, like if we don't actually get real and do the hard work of relationship, then the truth is we're just playing a game that it's all for show, and honestly, nothing really gets solved. Now listen, I, I hate conflict, okay? <laughs> I hate it. I often battle with people-pleasing, with wanting everybody to like me, and especially when I'm overwhelmed, I do not want to deal with drama. I mean, I'm from Minnesota, for crying out loud. Do you know what we call it in Minnesota? Minnesota nice, thank you, yes, which is another way of saying passive-aggressive, but yes, we are... We are Minnesota nice, right? So I don't like conflict. Anybody else here not like conflict, right? Can I get an amen? Yeah, a couple of us. All right, the rest of you scare me. But, um, <laughs> but I know, right? I know what it's like to embrace passivity. And I know this about me as well. Like I can sometimes do passive and sometimes I go to the other extreme. I get really stubborn in a disagreement and I sometimes become combative. So at my worst, I can be like a terrible conflict sandwich, right? I'm passive on one end, I'm combative on the other side, and in the middle, it's not very tasty at all, right? This is, this is how I can roll. But neither one of those options is, is a good option. Both of those responses stem from fear. Both passivity and combativeness, it stems from fear. And we can't just go, oh, you know, that's just my personality, right? That's just how I am, so just too bad for the rest of you. Like, that's super lame. You just can't do that if you're a follower of Jesus and you really want him to transform your heart and life. We can't get away with that excuse. Now, because bickering um, and combative stuff and hostility, it gets really ugly. Many people, including many pastors, 
mistakenly think that being passive is somehow an admirable trait. But hear me. Again, both passivity and combativeness are rooted in fear. And since we know that the opposite of fear, the opposite of fear is what? Let's go with love. <laughs> Let's go with love, right? I'm going to keep grilling that one for months, right? So if the opposite of fear is love, then I got to ask, friends, instead of fear-filled passivity, what would it look like to bring love to the mix when we're in the middle of a difficult situation? See, what David and Absalom needed, what you and I need, is to operate in love and to be peacemakers, right? Peacemakers. Even the word right there shows us that there's some action involved. You make something that's active. You make peace. It doesn't just happen, right? Peace doesn't just suddenly occur in the midst of passivity. And in David's and Absalom's situations, the problem is they didn't actually talk. They didn't really work it out. They just tried to smooth it over, it looks like, just to pretend everything's okay. But I think this is a good reminder of how I can often get confused about this. And in our relationships, it seems like, maybe even especially in churches, we kind of get confused about our call to be um, peacemakers, Jesus himself said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God, right? So while God's children, that's us, are called to be peacemakers, instead, it seems too often that we're kind of a little bit like David, and we're going to be peacekeepers instead. Instead of peacemakers, we're going to be just peacekeepers. Actually, Heidi said it better uh, as we talked about it this week. She said, you know, um, you can be a peacemaker or you can be a peace faker, which I think is very good, very wise. Um, and here's some of the differences between the two, right? A peacemaker is active while a peace faker is passive. Right? So peacemakers act in order to bring peace and attempt to reconcile people who are at odds with one another, but peace Keepers, peace fakers, on the other hand, they just strive to keep the peace at all costs. Solomon in Proverbs 10 says, People who wink at wrong cause trouble, but a bold reproof promotes peace. And to that, Stephen Arterburn says, Peacekeepers, by not acknowledging wrongdoings in an effort to maintain peace, are actually winking at them. So peacemakers and peacekeepers are actually complete opposites of each other, which I think that's a good reason that peace faker is an even better description. For example, in the U.S., for about 100 years following the Civil War, southern white men and women who were complicit in Jim Crow segregation would be a great example of peacekeepers or peace fakers because they wanted to keep things as they were without working for change, without looking at their own stuff they wanted to keep the so-called peace, as it was amongst people who looked like them at least. But the truth is it was racism disguised as peace, so it was fake peace, which means it was actually not peace. And so activists, civil rights activists, had to sometimes disturb the peace in an effort to make room for real peace. So there's a huge difference between peacemaking and peace faking. And again, we see this in relationships, in marriages, and in churches. And in a few weeks, we're going to talk more about what it looks like in healthy relationships to move towards being peacemakers and being real in ways that actually create a community 
that is safe enough for people actually to be real about what's happening in their life and maybe see some growth and maybe see some healing and have the opportunity for more freedom and wholeness. Because friends, everything has more power in the dark. Everything. So when we hide stuff in the dark, in the guise of pretending, oh, we don't want anybody to be uncomfortable, it doesn't work. It doesn't bring people to wholeness or health. Passivity excuses bad behavior. Well, we're just trying to be nice and get everybody to get along. But the problem is, as we read on in the example of Absalom, instead things get worse and worse, and more and more people now get harmed. It gets more destructive uh, because we're trying to pretend everything is fine. Everything is fine. But what it takes for us to live in a healthy community, the kind of community that we are growing deeper into becoming here at Hope is what the New Testament calls speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4, verse 14, 15. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the wind, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. And here's the home run verse. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So we go from being immature, kind of thrown all around into chaos. Instead, by speaking the truth in love, it moves us into being more and more grown-ups who look like Jesus, a community of folks who looks like Jesus. And again, in a few weeks, we'll talk more about speaking the truth in love. But I'm aware that as um, I wrap up here, that when we hear this story of David, it probably triggers some fathering stuff in us, um, maybe some parenting stuff. So if you're a parent and you've had kids, it can be real easy to get filled with regret and look at how we've blown it. Um, and I don't ever want you to leave this room feeling bad about yourself. Like, we're not here to beat anybody up. We're here to invite each other to all of us, me included, look at the truth of what's happening in our lives and then, in the light of that, invite the resurrection power of Jesus to come and change what it is that we're wrestling with. So it's okay for us to look at our broken places, at the wounded places of our life. It's okay for someone like Yvonne, who shared part of a very difficult, painful, tragic story last week, because she and we all believe the power of the love and resurrection of Jesus is what breaks the chains of all this stuff that could just hold us down into condemnation and fear. And so as our worship team comes, I have to say that I'm so glad even in the middle of some of these difficult stories, I'm so glad that we live on this side of the cross. We live on this side where we get to experience the power of Jesus' resurrection because his power breaks the power of fear. It breaks the power of passivity. The power of the resurrection of Jesus brings life to places where we have been confused or stuck or passive or where we've been wounded by someone else's passivity. The power of the resurrection into that brings grace. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, we now, as a people here at Hope, can be a place where everyone belongs, 
we can be a place where God truly moves, where lives actually change, and where love acts. Because the power of Jesus, especially when I say love acts, I mean the power and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus was anything but passive. It was anything but passive. Jesus' work on the cross, his resurrection was active. It was the ultimate demonstration of love. So as we sing this closing song, maybe you do have something that you're carrying that you're weighed down with or you feel horrible about and you wonder what you can do to right a wrong. Instead of just focusing on that and living in shame and fear, invite Jesus to bring his resurrection power to your areas of failure, to the places where maybe you have been passive where we can feel freed to look at all of our mess and our fear, all of our pain, all of our sorrow, all the places we've lived in fear and passivity. And as we sing about this power of Jesus, his resurrecting power, let's make it our prayer that Jesus bring life and resurrection to all the dead places in our life. So will you stand with me? Will you stand with me? And let's make that our prayer. Jesus, bring life and resurrection to all the dead places in my life, to all the places of fear, will you bring life? To all the places that seem hopelessly weak, bring your strength to those relationships that seem damaged beyond repair. We ask Jesus for your resurrecting hope.